As we do listen to the words of Psalm 135, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. And here's the psalmist's declaration. We don't know what inspired it, but we do know in our hearts that it's true. I know that the Lord is great. That our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases is what he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. I know that the Lord is great. Do you know that the Lord is great this morning? If so, say amen. amen. Do you know that God is good this morning? If so, say amen. amen. Father, we declare together as believers in Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters, young and old, Father, many who've walked with you for years and years, some who have just been introduced to you and just learned to speak your name, we say that the Lord is great and that the Lord is good. And Father, we believe because your word says so this morning that the Lord is here. Not because we say so, not because we're worthy of your presence, Father, but because as we were reminded at the beginning of our service where two or three gather in your name, you are present among us. Father, better than that, the Spirit of God lives within us. Father, every person in this room who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, the Holy Spirit of God is within them. And, and Lord, your Spirit, your Word says that the Spirit does all sorts of amazing things, that He encourages and that He comforts and that He convicts and that He corrects, that He heals us, that He strengthens us, that He renews our hope day by day by day. Father, it is good to be in this place this morning. It is good to be together as the, the church this morning. Father, it's good to come before the feet of Jesus and say, great are you, Lord. Father, I thank you that we've already gotten to go to and be reminded of the cross where the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled. Father, I thank you even that we were reminded right before that of, of what we're going to see in the word this morning, that we are so desperately needy, that apart from you, we have nothing, but in you, we have everything. Father, I thank you for these words, these songs of worship and praise, Father, that stir our hearts, but they do so much more than that. They remind us of, of the way things really are, that, that Jesus is reigning from his throne on high, that your spirit is dwelling within and among us, Father, that we are of all people most blessed because we've met you. And Father, I simply want to pray that as we open your word now that the preacher would not get in the way of the message. And Father, that, that the things we've carried in with us would not obscure our vision and our view and, and our devotion to Jesus Christ. Father, I'm just praying that for a few more minutes as we gather here together, that Jesus would be not only the main thing, that he would be the only thing, and that we truly would give your son our undivided attention. Father, for that to happen, we of course, as always, do need your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's here among us, within us, and we pray that, that he would be the one who even now begins to guide us in truth, and to guard us from error, and to deliver us from distraction, and to help us see Jesus. Father, we're longing for revival here. We're longing for it throughout our city. Father, as we continue to pray for other churches around town, I want to lift up this morning New City Church. Father, a plant that I'm only aware of through friends, but a place where two congregations have come together saying that, that we want to be one united body in Christ, and we want to reach a particular neighborhood, and we pray that you would bless them abundantly. You would use that church, that new church, to bring new life to Cedar Rapids, Father, just as we long for you to do in this neighborhood. Father, you are so good, you're so great, you're so kind. Be with us now as we go to your word, as, as we do, Father, as always, let us see Jesus clearly. As we do, as always, Father, may we see Jesus only, and let us leave rejoicing in a little while, not just because we came to church and had a good time, 
but because we sat at the feet of the one who spilled his blood for us and then rose in triumph, Jesus, in whose name we pray, all of God's people said together, amen. 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 You may be seated. As you sit down, the boys and girls can slip out for Children's Church, and as they do that, I want to invite you to meet me in your Bible in Mark chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, make your way to Mark chapter 9, where we just continue this, this process, this endeavor of, of truly, genuinely seeking to follow the Son, Jesus Christ, walking through His life and ministry together, taking another step, getting another story, and hopefully having another through it encounter with, with the living God who wants to speak to our hearts and encourage us and challenge us draw us closer to him today. Mark chapter 9, as always, is where I want you to meet me. I'm going to read the text here in just a, a moment or two as you make your way there. But before we read it, just to establish where we are, where we're headed, where we're going this morning, let me begin by saying to you, or perhaps reminding you as the case may be, that many of you have probably heard the old story, probably heard it even as a sermon illustration on, on a number of different occasions, uh, but, but about how Thomas Edison, the inventor of a century, a century and a half ago, tried and failed more than 100, maybe it was a thousand times for all I know, before successfully inventing the incandescent light bulb. You've probably also heard the story, the litany of, of hardships and sorrows and losses that Abraham Lincoln endured before he finally was elected our nation's 16th president. You may have even heard, perhaps not, but probably so, that it took the Chicago Cubs 108 years to win the World Series. Can we just savor that moment, number for a moment, 108 years? You say, well, yeah, I've heard of all those things, but what do they have in common? Well, what those three things and many others like them have in common is that they all together serve as a reminder that despite what you've been told in whatever context you may have heard it, that in this life, failure is always an option. In this life, failure is always an option. But, you know, as I thought about those three stories and sort of just in my mind uh, considered others like them, what I also began to realize is that while those stories may encourage us in one way to keep pressing on and to keep on trying, what none of those stories or any other story like them can do is convey the heartache, the depth of heartache that you and I feel in the moment when you or I is the one who has failed. The sadness, the regret, the guilt, the self-doubt, all of these emotions and feelings that, again, when we are the one who in whatever way has failed, it makes us want to run and hide and pretend and wish we'd never even tried. Because after all, eventually, Edison did succeed. He invented the light bulb. After all, Abraham Lincoln not only got elected president, he saved the republic. After all, the Cubs as hard as it is for me to admit, did win the World Series. They're still selling t-shirts at Hy-Vee, if you didn't know. They're fairly excited about that. Sooner or later, what makes those stories great is they all succeeded. But what about you? What about us? What about me? Where's our, when we have failed, the assurance of our happy ending? The reason I ask is because that is essentially the issue before us in God's word this morning. 
in Mark chapter 9, where what we are about to see is this, that while Peter and James and John, three of Jesus' disciples, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, were having the time of their lives up on the mountaintop with Jesus. You remember, Jesus was transfigured before them. I suggested to you that may have been the, the single, single mo- greatest moment, spiritually speaking, in all of human history when Jesus was glorified before his disciples. Well, what we're about to see is while all that was happening up on the mountaintop, Jesus' other nine disciples were literally down in the valley. And down in the valley at the foot of that mountain in whatever town or village they were in, what we are about to see is that those other nine disciples had gotten themselves into a very serious, a very public, and a very embarrassing jam. Look with me at Mark 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 29 where the story is told. This is what the scripture says. It says, When they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? He asked the crowd, what are you discussing with my guys? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it, that spirit seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. And he, Jesus, answered them. I believe that them here is primarily the disciples, though perhaps not exclusively. He answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him, the boy, to me. And they brought the boy to him. When he, the boy, saw him, Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him, and he got up. And when he, Jesus, came into into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Would you agree with me? I'm guessing that you would when I say that nobody likes failure. (laughs) Nobody in their life likes failure of any kind. But wouldn't you also, I would imagine, agree with me when I say that most of us could readily attest to the fact that we've learned far more from our failures in life than we probably ever have from our successes. Failure is always an option. Failure is an opportunity to learn and to grow. And based on the failure of the disciples that we see in this particular passage, there are three things I want to bring to your attention from this story this morning that I believe are essential, not just helpful, but essential to us because we know there are times coming when we will once again fail Two. Got three things I want you to see. They're not three principles for how to have a happy life. They're not three sort of declarations. They're simply three movements of the story that I believe bring the message out. The first one is this. 
The first thing, and I've alluded to it already, is, is that in this story, we are led to acknowledge the reality of the agony of defeat. As we think about our lives, as we look at this story, we must acknowledge the reality of the agony of defeat. Because once again, in a nutshell, here's the deal. Jesus is absent. He's up on the mountain. And in Jesus' absence, his remaining nine disciples, a man comes to them. This is what we see at the beginning of the story. And he is pleading for help for his demon-possessed son. Now, now, what I want you to remember, if you have been here with us already, and what I want you to know, if you have not, is that earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus had, in fact, given his disciples such authority. In Mark chapter 6, he gave them authority to cast out unclean spirits. If you read Mark 6, 6 13, it says that they had done so successfully many, many times. They've been casting out all kinds of demons. So the disciples had handled this kind of situation before. That's probably exactly why the man brought his son to them. But this time they failed. Now, I would have to guess, if I were to imagine the story in my mind, that they did everything this time that they had done before. They said the right words. They took the right steps. They went through the process that Jesus had given them in order to, to cast out an evil spirit. They did everything they had known how to do that had always worked for them before. But this time, when whichever one of them it was stretched out his hand and called out the demon, nothing. No miracle. No deliverance, no supernatural moment of victory, just a whole lot of very public humiliation. Verse 18 tells us, in no uncertain terms, the man says to Jesus, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. You've probably been there. I'm not saying you've tried casting out demons. I'm just saying you have probably been there, as have I. And what I mean by that is this, you've attempted something great for God. You attempted something for God, right? You sought in obedience to what you see in God's word, what you heard in a sermon, what God impressed on your heart, to do something for him, to share your faith with a friend, uh, to, to, to sign up and, and participate, maybe even help lead some sort of Bible study or small group. You've gotten involved with organizing an event or going on a missions trip or whatever it is, great or small, something that you wanted to do for the glory of God. But when all was said and done, it didn't go the way you planned. There was no great fruit, at least, that you could see in the moment when, when the event was over, when the trip was complete, when the, the lesson had been taught. There was no thrill of victory, <laughs> just the agony of spiritual, apparent spiritual defeat. Now listen, I don't want to be misunderstood. There are all kinds of reasons why failure happens in the spiritual realm, all kinds. I am not about to say, that, or what I'm about to say is not to, to, to give you the idea or to somehow suggest a lesson that, that what I'm about to tell you is the only reason we fail. There are all kinds of reasons why we can encounter spiritual failure. But what I am about to say is that in this story, we don't have to guess what the problem was. Because the problem is right here on the page. Because according to Jesus, in verse 19 in this story, the reason why his disciples failed was because they were operating in a spirit of self-sufficiency. Because, as Jesus uses the word himself, they, they attempted to do something for him in a spirit of unbelief. Look again in your Bible at verse 19. He answered them and said, again, I think he's talking to the disciples because it's the disciples who failed here. 
Oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I have to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? So apparently Jesus gets frustrated with us sometimes. May not have known that. We may not like that. That may come as a surprise, but it sure looks that way here like he's frustrated. And, and you know, I, I want to be very, very careful. Again, I'm, I'm going to do this several times because I want us to make sure we keep our focus in this story. Because it is easy for, and, and preachers do this all the time, to overplay our hand here and sort of use this story as a manipulative guilt tool of guilt uh, to give us some sort of impression like, you know, I know you're going through life following Jesus, but, but you should keep in mind that up in heaven, Jesus is kind of like this. You know, arms crossed, looking down on you, waiting for you to mess up so you can wrap your knuckles, slap the back of your head, call you out, chastise you because he knows you're going to screw up and, you know, he's going to guilt you back into obedience and preachers do that all the time. It's a very effective tool. It's a sinful one, but they do it. So I want to be very, very careful and not do that with this story, not somehow give you the impression that, that the answer to spiritual defeat is to feel more guilty. But what I am going to say, because it's here in the text, is that based on this story, one of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit, and grieve is probably a better word than frustrate, one of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit of God is, according to this story, when we operate in our own strength. When we operate in our own wisdom, when we say, whether, uh, uh, whether we realize we're doing it or not, Lord, I really don't need you for this one. I don't need your help in this situation. One of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit is when we try to do spiritual things, anything, in our own strength. And the point here at the beginning of this story is this, that Jesus loves us too much to let us do that for very long. And what he will do when the time is right, because his time is always perfect, is he will, when necessary, allow you and allow me and allow us to experience the agony of spiritual defeat. If it will remind us, serve to remind us of where our strength truly comes from. He will allow us, we need to understand this, Jesus will allow you to experience spiritual defeat when you are operating in your own strength so that we'll stop what we are doing, stop the way we are going, get off the path we are traveling, and recognize the second thing I want you to see in this story, which is the reality of our own inadequate faith. The inadequacy, secondly, of our own faith, which is spelled out for us in verses 20 through 24. But before we look at this section sort of in depth. I want to make sure that we get clear on verse 23. And I don't like that I have to take the time to do this, but I think it's really, really important that I do take the time to do it anyway. Because if you look at verse 23, Jesus says something in that verse to the Father who again has come to him for help and the disciples have failed. Jesus said, the Father says to him, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And in verse 23, Jesus says to him, if you can, here's, this, here's the verse. All things are possible to him who believes. That is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. All things are possible to him who believes. It's used for craziness, like I claim that new car in Jesus' name because I believe, right? I claim that promotion. I claim six-pack abs. I mean, I got some stuff I want. And in Jesus' name, I believe and I will. Anybody heard this stuff before? Anybody? All right. Not here, right? But you've heard it somewhere. That's not faith. That's not belief. That's presumption. That's using the name of Jesus to get what I want. Jesus' name to make God or somehow coerce God to do what I want to do. 
That is not, everybody say, that is not, that is not what Jesus is saying here. Because when Jesus said, look again at your Bible, all things are possible to him who believes. First of all, we got to remember who's making this statement. And that he is the only one in all of the universe who is able to do all things. He made all things, created all things, he controls all things, he directs all things, and he can do all things. And he's the only one. So first of all, we've got to understand that when we bring needs before him, when we find ourselves in places of of lack or or of, of uncertainty or whatever the case may be, we must first of all make sure that he alone is the object of our faith. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the object of my faith. And furthermore, that when we come to him with what we want or what we need, what we desire, what we crave, that we do so in a spirit of of complete humility. Complete humility, recognizing he is Lord, I am not, and because he's Lord, he can do whatever he wants to do. He can say yes, he can say no, he can say wait, he can say later. He can redirect us entirely. So we've got to remember who's boss, who's in charge, and who's not. And I know that because of what it says in Isaiah 66, verse 2. You don't need to turn there, but I urge you to write it down, Isaiah 66, 2. Because here's what God himself said. He said to Israel, but through Israel, to Israel, he's saying it to us as well. The Lord says, my hand made everything. My hand has made all things. And, Isaiah 66, 2, this is the person to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one to whom I will look. To, to look means to look with favor, Right? to look with an open hand and an open heart. The person who understands that I'm Lord, they're not, and how much he or she needs me. And so I urge you, don't abuse or give in to the abuse of verse 23, because in fact, that is precisely, and the reason I take the time to spell this out, that's precisely why the disciples failed, because they misunderstood that, or at least they, they forgot it. Because again, what happened? Well, they recognized there was a problem. It was right there in front of them. Demon-possessed boy, Father, in desperate need of help. They recognized the problem. They used the right words. They followed the right steps. They did everything. Again, they'd done many, maybe dozens of times before. They went through the process. But Jesus, what did he say? He said they did it without what? They did it without faith. They did it without faith, in their own strength, in their own wisdom. Now, here's what I want to invite you to do. Compare them to the Father in verse 24. Compare their faithlessness. Again, whether they meant to or not, that's just the reality. Their faithlessness with the Father in verse 24. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Can I say to you, that may be the most honest prayer in the entire Bible. (laughs) the most transparent. I mean, we got great prayers in the Psalms, right? We've got great prayers in Paul's letters. There's no more honest prayer than that. I believe. I get it. I know who you are. I know what you can do. I've heard all the promises, but in my particular situation, I can't do the math. I'm not sure if it's going to work. You're going to work for me. But I would suggest to you that since that's when the Lord finally moved, 
When the man, and that's what he did, he prayed. I believe, help my unbelief. Since that's when the Lord finally moved, I believe this whole scene amplifies one of the most important truths we must hang on to as people who not only want to follow the Son, but who want to effectively serve the Son as part of our following. We want to do great things for God. I believe we should want to do great things for God. But if that's the camp you are in, and I hope you are, If you want to follow and serve the Son, what we must remember from this story is that it is not a matter of how much faith you possess, as if you could quantify it. Well, I've got 25% more faith than you do, but she's got 17% more. I don't know how you do that. It's not a matter of how much faith you possess. No, the point of this story is that who is, where is your faith being placed? Not the amount of your faith, the object of your faith. It's not how much faith you have, it's in whom your faith and your confidence is being placed. Tim Keller explains this so well. I want you just to listen to his words for a moment when he says this. He says, through Jesus, this is such good news, I hope it's good news to you, it is to me. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness as as a way of life, just repentant helplessness. Let me say that again. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness helplessness, to access the presence of God. Jesus could have told the Father, purify your heart, confess all your sins, get rid of all your doubts, and once you've surrendered to me totally, you can come and can come before me with a pure heart, then you can ask for the healing you need. But Jesus doesn't say that, because perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you are waiting for perfect righteousness, you'll never come into the presence of God at all. Here's his bottom line. Here's what Keller says. You must admit, I must admit, we must admit, we need help. We need help. And Keller says, when you can say that, you are truly approaching God in worship. I need help. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should make excuses for immature, doubt-riddled faith. It's no badge of honor to, to, to enthrone your doubts and post them on Facebook about all these great questions you've got about God. There's no excuse for immature faith and, and just staying. I'm not saying we should excuse it. I'm just saying it's a reality. We find ourselves, we all, none of our faith is truly, truly complete. And so I'm not saying we should excuse, but boy, here's what I am saying is that if you and I are going to move forward and see Jesus work, you're going to move forward in your life toward maturity in Christ. If we as a body of believers are going to move forward toward maturity in Christ, we need to do what the Father in the story did here. Acknowledge our inadequate faith. We believe. We believe. Hey, how about we believe he can pay the bills, amen? Anybody struggling with a little bit of unbelief right now? Help our unbelief, right? What more practical application could we have? We know what he can do. We're just wondering if he'll do it for us. And you've got stuff like that in your life too. Your Lord, we're not. We need your help. The agony of defeat, we all encounter it. Our inadequate faith, we all come up short. And the way we acknowledge the inadequacy of our faith is by, again, praying the way the Father did here. I believe, help my unbelief. And that takes us to the third and the final and I believe the most essential thing we need to zero our attention in on this morning, which is this, and it's probably no surprise, the necessity of prayer. The absolute and irreplaceable necessity of prayer. Look at me at verses 28 and 29. 
the end of the story, and I know we're going over some stuff, but I think this is really the heart of the matter. So when Jesus came into the house, whatever house they were staying, whatever village they were in, his disciples began to question him privately, saying, why couldn't we drive it, the evil spirit, out? And he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, you've heard me say from this spot many times before that there is a fundamental rhythm of prayer in the Bible, and that the fundamental rhythm of prayer in the Bible is God is worthy and we are needy. God is worthy, we are needy. God is worthy, we are needy. Every prayer, I believe with all my heart, every prayer that's ever been prayed goes into one of those two boxes. It's either worship or it's an expression of need. That's why we pray. God is worthy, we are needy. The reason I remind you that that is the fundamental biblical rhythm of prayer is because it is the latter half of that equation that these disciples forgot. We are needy. I'm needy. All God's children are needy. They knew the, the boy was needy. It was obvious. He's rolling on the ground, has no control, scarred, wounded. They know the father's needy. He's standing there with tears in his eyes. Help. Help me. But in that position of spiritual leadership, whatever it was, they forgot. Dudes, we're needy too. We're just as needy as they are. Our need is just different. And that is why Jesus succeeded where they failed. Because Jesus understood the necessity of prayer. But wait, you say, I'm looking at the story. It doesn't say Jesus prayed in this story. We're a Bible church. We go by what the Bible says. And you're saying Jesus prayed. It doesn't say he prayed here. I know. If by prayer you mean he didn't bow his head, close his eyes, fold his hands, and begin to pray aloud, absolutely, Jesus doesn't do that in this story. But if you go through the Gospels, not just Mark, but all four of them, you know what you find? Time, and you know this is there. The Gospels provide us with mounds and mounds and mounds of evidence that Jesus Christ, while here on earth, lived in constant, uninterrupted, total radical dependence on his Father every moment of the day and night. He says it in John's Gospel. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I'm not here to do my own will. I'm here to do his. I only listen for what, I'm paraphrasing, but I only listen for what the Father tells me to do. And what the Father tells me to do is what, I live in dependence on him all the time. And sometimes I go away by myself and pray, but all day long I'm walking with him and listening to him. And that's the essence of prayer. The essence of prayer is dependence. Uh, actual verbal prayer is just the outward expression of the internal dependence. Jesus was in prayer all the time. And that is why I say to us this morning that in every spiritual endeavor we undertake, we must acknowledge the absolute, irreplaceable necessity of prayer. Listen. I realize that apart from prayer, without prayer, you can still draw a crowd, okay? I believe that without prayer, you can put on a great show. And, and I am not knocking any particular church or style of church, so don't get that idea in your head. I'm just saying this is factual. Without prayer, you can draw a crowd, you can put on a show, you can stir people's emotions, you can do some great big stuff. And you can do it, presumably in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying that without prayer you can't get things done, but what I am saying, because it's Jesus' point here, is that when we do spiritual things without acknowledging and, and utilizing and resting in the necessity of prayer, we may not be making the kingdom impact that we think we are by what we can see. In fact, I would say to you that if we didn't pray, we aren't making. I mean, God can still use us in our disobedience, but we're not making the impact we think when we don't seek 
him first. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded, and I want to do this quickly because I know we're short on time, but I want you to turn with me in your Bible. Hold Mark 9 and go to Revelation chapter 2, because I'm not making this up. This is right there in the scriptures. Real, real quick, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to the apostle John. And he says, John, I've got seven letters I want you to send to seven real churches that existed in the first century. I have a message for each of these churches. I've got some good things to say to them. I've got some hard things to say to them. But you are the messenger I'm using to deliver those seven letters to those seven churches. And the first letter that the Lord gave John to deliver to a church was meant for the church at Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus is the gold standard in the New Testament, all right? That was a church that got it done big time for a long time. All the, all the greats were there. Timothy was there, and Paul was there, and Silas, and Barnabas, and John was there, and, and people coming. I mean, this was the church that was getting it done. And I don't say that in some sort of half-hearted way. I mean, they really did. They did great things for the Lord in a very, very wicked, difficult place. It was a great church for a long time. But at the end of John's life, the end of the first century, here's what Jesus had to say to them. He said to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, John, here's what I want you to write. The one who holds seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's Jesus. Jesus says this to you, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Dudes, you're getting it done. And you've gotten it done for a long time, and there's a lot to be thankful for, and there's a lot to be proud of. But I have something against you, verse 4. Amidst all your activity. I mean, you've got doctrine, you've got leadership, you've got... You left your first love. I have this against you. You left your first love. So remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first when you were small and nobody knew your name. When it was you and Jesus and that's all and you knew it. Remember where you started and repent or else I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. That is my favor, my blessing. I'm just going to leave you to your program. Wow. And that is hard, but that's speaking the truth in love. You've left your first love. And the reason I take you to that story in the context of Mark chapter 9 is because I believe with all my heart just that, that just as one of the, the chief and clearest signs that a marriage is broken is that a husband and wife quit speaking to one another, one of the chief and clearest signs a church has lost its first love, a believer's lost its first love, is they stop praying. I don't live in dependence on a love relationship with the Father. They no longer pray. And Jesus says, hey, there's a whole bunch of stuff that it can't happen if you don't. If you don't pray. So for the last few minutes, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you, ask us, just a series of sort of, we'll call them diagnostic questions. I, and I'm not going to put them on the screen because I don't want you to try to write all of them down, okay? Don't try to write all of them down. Because if we write them all down, we don't listen and think and respond. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Listen to these questions. And before the Lord, say, Lord, is any of this true of me? 
Which one matters? Which one is the one God wants me to deal with? We'll do this, and then we'll be done. Is there anything in your life this morning going on right now You've sort of decided whether you realize it or not, it's just too big to pray about because <laughs> you know what's going to happen. You know there's no hope. There's not an answer. Is there anything in your life you just say, it's just too big. I just, what's the point anymore? It's gone on too long. Conversely, is there anything in your life you decide it's too small to pray about? I can handle it myself, right? I don't need Jesus for that. Typically speaking, is prayer your last resort rather than your first? It's not seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Deep down, if you were honest, would you have to admit, and I know I've been here many times before, that a head full of knowledge is better than a prayerful heart. As long as I know the right answers, I can make my case, who needs to pray? Because I, I, I know it, right? I can now talk people. Here's a tough one. Is it more important to be in control than to be dependent? I don't know what's going on, but as long as I have the illusion of control, that's where I want to be, rather than to release control to God and be dependent. Is there any way in which you, I, we are guilty of going through the spiritual motions because we've done it all before and we know how to get results? If I'm reluctant in any way to pray, here's, here's a question, why? Why don't I want to pray? Why do I push back against prayer? Why? And could it be that the agony of defeat you are facing today is in fact because you have forgotten or forsaken the necessity of prayer? I just didn't give it to Jesus. And I need to give it to him now. My friend Daniel Henderson says it all the time. And every time he says it, I am once again freshly convicted. <laughs> He says, prayerlessness, prayerlessness is my personal declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from God. I can do it myself. I don't need your help. I don't know if you've noticed, prayerlessness never ends well. It never leads anywhere good. It never bears fruit unless it's the fruit of ultimately repentance because we finally come to the end of our rope. But when we shift our perspective, and here's, what, here's really my plea today, and I promise, big idea, we're done. When we shift our perspective on prayer as not seeing it as an obligation, but an invitation, an invitation to cease striving to lean hard on Jesus and to rest in the presence of the one who controls it all, who owns it all, for whom nothing is impossible and who showers us with grace. When we move from obligation to invitation, we'll embrace today's big idea, which is this, that there is no path. Everybody say, there's no path. There is no path to spiritual victory apart from prayer. There is no path to spiritual victory apart from prayer prayer. So Lord, we pray as your disciples did on another occasion at another time in their walk with you. Jesus, teach us to pray. Father, everybody in this room can fold their hands and bow their head and close their eyes. 
and say some words. And there are times when that's beautifully and perfectly appropriate. But Father, prayer is so much more about church services and dinner time and bedtime. Father, it's about a living, breathing, life-giving, ongoing, daily, joyful dependence upon you. And Father, I confess this morning, I am not the man of prayer that I long to be. Father, others here may feel the same about themselves. At the same time, Father, the last thing we need to do is walk out of these doors defeated, beat up, and simply resolving, tomorrow I'll pray more. Father, that's not what the man in this story did. He said, Lord, I do believe. Just help my unbelief. Meet me where I am. And get me where you want me to be. Father, you know we long to be a house of prayer. You know that deep down, many, many, many of us long to be men and women and children of prayer. Lord, you know we, we realize we need to live in daily, unbroken dependence upon you for all things, not just big things. So, Father, where we are prayerless, awaken and stir our hearts. Where we are prayerful, Father, refresh us so that we don't quit. And Father, where you call us and position us, even this day to serve you, may none of it be done without prayer. Father, thank you for the great invitation to draw near to the heart of Jesus. Take the things of truth that have been spoken and sealed into our hearts and take all the rest and wash it away so that we leave with eyes and hearts on Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.